Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Happy Hour History. I'm your host, Professor Harpin. Today I thought we should talk about some things that are going to be on the November 8th, 2022 ballot for California. I guess it would be ballots, I don't know, but what is going to be on your ballot for you to vote on. So the purpose of this is not to tell you which way to go. The purpose of it is to discuss what's even on the ballot so that you can make an informed decision. One of the things I always tell my students is that you cannot rely on things like commercials to tell you about what something is for, whether that be for or against. If you've ever noticed at the end of those commercials, they always have the disclaimer sort of at the bottom about who's funding it. And we know that with these commercials, and especially But with the commercials and with the things that you get in the mail, the pamphlets, and all the mail we're all going to be getting over the next few months as it relates to the elections, there are things that get twisted around. So it's really good to have a clear opinion. So I always suggest to people that they go to the Secretary of State website for their state, and there you can read you know, verbatim what is on the ballot, like what it represents, what a yes means, what a no means. And so for California, there are some things that are going to be coming up and I wanted to talk about it. That way you would have a clear idea over what's at stake and what it means if you vote yes or if you vote no. Okay, so the first proposed statewide in California ballot measure is Proposition 1, and that is titled Constitutional Right to Reproductive Freedom, Legislative Constitutional Amendment. So the way it is currently worded is that the California Constitution declares that defending life and liberty, acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and pursuing and obtaining safety, happiness, and privacy are inalienable rights and that a person may not be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law or equal protection of the laws. So there's currently something in place called the Reproductive Privacy Act, which declares that every individual has the right to privacy with respect to personal reproductive decisions and prohibits the state, in this case California, from denying or interfering with a person's right to choose or obtain an abortion before viability of the fetus. That's important, right? Because we talked about that before. It's before the viability of the fetus or when the abortion is necessary to protect the life or the health of the person. So this measure, it says, would amend the California Constitution to prohibit the state from denying or interfering with an individual's reproductive freedom and their most intimate decisions, which includes their fundamental right to choose to have an abortion and their fundamental right to choose or to refuse contraceptives. So what they're saying is that they want the Constitution of the state of California to read the following. The state shall not deny or interfere with an individual's reproductive freedom and their most intimate decisions, which includes their fundamental right to choose or have an abortion and their fundamental right to choose or refuse contraceptives. This section is intended to further the constitutional right to privacy guaranteed by Section 1 because I believe it would be Section 1.1. So it includes the right to privacy guaranteed in Section 1, I guess, point zero in this case, and the constitutional right to not be denied equal protection granted by section seven okay the next one is proposition 26 which says it would allow in-person roulette dice games sports wagering on tribal lands and 
initiative constitutional amendment and statute. So if you go on the Secretary of State website, you can look at the file. It has a couple letters from different leaders from different tribal groups around the state. And essentially what they're trying to do is, like it says, be able to have this sort of dice games, racetrack games, other things that are technically illegal, you would be able to do them on the same reservations that have casinos already. And that would, even though, because excuse me, it's illegal because it's considered a black market and it, you know, I don't know why they consider it illegal, but many of these tribes feel like if they're able to now allow those sports gamblings to take place on their reservations, that they will be able to, of course, regulate it because they have safe establishments already and they manage things very closely. So they're saying it's not going to be the threat to public safety that it has been considered in the past. And that they're saying that for Californians age 21 or older, they should be able to participate in legal sports wagering in highly regulated facilities that already have gaming operations and are already in good standing with the appropriate federal, state, and local regulatory agencies. So some of you, especially a lot of us in Southern California, we know people who travel across the border in order to participate in these games or they do so illegally here. But essentially this would make it possible and that revenue would go toward the reservations themselves. So the next proposition is actually Proposition 27, and this one says allows online and mobile sports wagering outside tribal lands. So this one would mean that you can do these things generally on your phone and online, and it doesn't have to be in the same regulated facility that it would be like on one of the reservations and the casinos that they have there. So Again, in the file, it's a pretty large file, it's about 63 pages, so you could read through what some of the arguments are. Some people are saying that it actually would help with the mental health of Californians to be able to play these types of games and to be able to potentially you know, win on these types of games through the comfort of their own home or on their own personal devices. And then, of course, there are some people who are saying, again, that it's it's not good to have it in an unregulated facility. I think this is the proposition that I've seen where they have commercials. And so, again, the issue with this one is some people would argue that if these sort of things are going to happen, then they should have to happen in a regulated facility like a casino that's already being regulated and that they're already keeping accounting. It's a safe environment, things like that, as opposed to people being able to do it on their personal devices, wherever they are. But one of the things that is clear is that it would not be allowed to happen at like youth events, et cetera. You would still have to be 21 years or older to participate. So some of their, there is some overlap with regard to how it would be regulated and and what the age requirement would be, but it would just be able to happen wherever you are within the state as long as you're over 21 years old. The next one is Proposition 28, and it says provides additional funding for arts and music education in public schools. Now, many of us who are either in education or even some of you who have children probably or come from ethnic communities know that music education is very important and it does help with the comprehension of students, especially for different learning styles, right? I don't think anybody would debate that. However, 
um, part of the file that's here, it says that it gives statistics. So it says that despite clear value of arts and music education, an independent study, and I don't know who did it, I guess it would probably be somewhere in here, but it says that 90% of elementary schools fail to provide high quality course of study across arts disciplines, 96% of middle schools fail to provide that, and 72% of high schools fail to provide that. So it says the same study found that music education in particular has seen a dramatic decline in student enrollment and offered curriculum. Not surprisingly, student access to arts education is worse for high poverty schools and that in order to remedy that, there needs to be public funding for arts and music education in the form of requiring that the funds be primarily spent on certificated arts teachers, classified personnel, and teaching aides, required schools, or excuse me, requiring schools to publish annual reports, identifying the specific arts programs provided, and the number of students that participate in the programs that are being funded, ensuring that every public school receives the increased funding for arts and music education, and by providing even more funding for schools that serve children in low-income communities who lack access to arts and music education, which to me makes sense because, of course, you can offer things like, for example, a music teacher, right? But if the students have to pay to rent the instruments, that's going to cut into the number of people who are going to be allowed to participate or who will be able to participate even if they have a general interest for it. And they say they want to continue to protect Proposition 98, which is funding of public schools by requiring the legislature to use the money from the general fund to supplement it, and that they believe that they can do that without raising taxes. So I'll say that I've mentioned before that I went to middle school overseas, and I'll say one of the things I thought was really interesting being in a government-funded school was that we did not have to fundraise for anything, and there were no supplementary fees or materials fees for any of the electives that we wanted to do. So when I took ceramics for a whole year, when I took guitar, if you did any other type of band, anything that required an instrument, like nothing, we didn't have to fundraise for anything. There was literally funding for all of it. And of course, having ranges to those things, like I said, for people in education, they know that it's very rare for that to happen, that there are a lot of people who generally want to be involved, but because of lack of funding, they're not able to. So that ballot initiative is to help increase funding, especially in low-income areas. The next one is Proposition 29, which requires on-site licensed medical professionals at kidney dialysis clinics and establishes other state requirements. So that may sound familiar. I do remember something. I feel like this was on the ballot two years ago, and I'm not sure if maybe that was federal as opposed to the state, but it says here that in California, nearly 80,000 people undergo dialysis treatment. And it also says that within the state, dialysis clinics are not currently required to maintain a doctor or other advanced practitioner on the site to oversee quality, ensure patient plan of care is appropriately followed and monitor safety protocols. So it's saying that you need to have someone who is a physician or advanced practitioner on site at all times while dialysis treatment is being had. So during their operational hours, 
because it affects so many people. And it says that people who go to for-profit dialysis clinics are more likely to be hospitalized, less likely to have the same access to care or knowledge about their type of care, and more likely to die. So it says that this act is to try to ensure that outpatient kidney dialysis clinics provide quality and affordable patient care to everybody suffering from end-stage renal disease, provide government information that it needs to supervise dialysis clinics to ensure all clinic owners and physicians provide patients with the appropriate care, that would provide dialysis patients with information about clinics and physicians' financial interests so patients can make informed choices about their care, and it would be budget-neutral for the state to implement and to administer. Now, according to Section 1226.7 of the Health and Safety Code, it says that no dialysis clinic is allowed to offer different levels of care or, of course, discriminate against people for the type of care that they're going to receive based on who's paying for it and things like that. But we know that, again, these things do happen. There's a lot of healthcare disparities in the country, especially with regard to socioeconomic class, gender, race, and things like that. So that is going to be, well, that will be Proposition 28. No, I'm sorry, Proposition 29. That's 29. All right, so the next one is actually Proposition 30. So that's provides funding for programs to reduce air pollution and prevent wildfires by increasing tax on personal income over $2 million. Now, I know some of you don't like for taxes to be raised, (laughs) but for most of you listening to this podcast, you don't make over $2 million a year. I don't make over $2 million a year, so it does not affect us personally. (laughs) as far as the taxing goes. However, this would be charge, excuse me, raising taxes on people who do make that amount of money or more so that they can try to offset some of the effects of climate change and also would make sure that we have reduced air pollution, which of course is a public health concern. Some of you know when you're looking at your weather apps or whatever, or if you have asthma or other type of lung issues, that the air quality is, you know, generally pretty bad. So, and that's everywhere. I don't think that's just in the state, but that initiative is to raise the taxes on those people so that they can try to offset it. Part of what they're calling for is reducing emissions from medium and high duty vehicles, or excuse me, medium and heavy duty vehicles. So it says like buses, big rig trucks, etc. And that's something that I think is going to happen anyway by, I think it said by 2030 or 2035, that they're not supposed to be producing new trucks or new cars that use the same type of exhaust mechanisms to make the air cleaner. But a lot of us know that it's not just about the individual consumers, even though like all the cars on the road does lead to like worse air quality. You know, we can look at LA and see the effects of that. However, it's also about larger corporations. So hopefully this would also include those groups who do make um, their, more than their fair share of emissions into the air, which affects air quality. There's a whole thing about you know how redlining would be affected by this because, of course, if the cars are on the road, they're usually going through lower income areas, but I'm not going to go into that because I talk about that kind of stuff all the time. But that is the proposed Proposition 30. And the last one is Proposition 31, which is a referendum on 2020 law that would prohibit the retail sale of certain flavored tobacco products. 
So it says that the existing law, which is the Stop Tobacco Access to Kids Enforcement, or also known as STAKE, S-T-A-K-E, Act, prohibits a person from selling or furnishing tobacco products to someone under 21 years old. And I actually had forgotten that they raised the smoking age from 18 to 21. The existing law also prohibits the use of alcohol products in county offices of education, charter schools, or school district property, near playgrounds, or youth sporting events as specified. This proposed bill would prohibit a tobacco retailer from selling, offering for sale, or possessing with the intent to sell or offer for sale a flavored tobacco product or tobacco product flavor enhancer, such as the terms defined except as specified. There's a violation punishable by a fine of $250 each for each violation. And let's see. It says characterizing flavor means a distinguishable taste or aroma or both other than the taste or aroma of tobacco. Characterizing flavors include but are not limited to tastes or aromas relating to any fruit, chocolate, vanilla, honey, candy, cocoa, dessert, alcoholic beverage, menthol, mint, wintergreen, herb, or spice. A tobacco product shall not be determined to have a characterizing flavor solely because of the use of additives or flavorings of the provision of ingredient information. Rather, it's, it is the presence of a distinguishable taste or aroma or both as described in the first sentence of this definition that constitutes a characterizing flavor. So flavored shisha means any shisha tobacco product that contains a constituent that imparts a characterizing flavor. Flavored tobacco product means any tobacco product that contains a constituent that imparts a characteristic flavor. Hookah means a type of water pipe used to smoke shisha or other tobacco products with a long flexible tube for drying aerosol through water. Components of hookah may include heads, stems, bowls, and hoses. Tobacco, excuse me, hookah tobacco retailer means a tobacco retailer that is engaged in the retail sale of shisha products, hookah, and hookah smoking accessories. Loose leaf tobacco is included in this. And of course, packaging, they mean everything. So boxes, cartons, any container of any kind, any wrapping, premium cigar. So things that are cigar that is handmade, it is not mass produced for the use of mechanization, has a wrapper that is made entirely from whole tobacco leaf and has a wholesale price of no less than $12. A premium cigar does not have a filter tip or non-tobacco mouthpiece and is capped by hand. And that those things cannot be sold in any retail location, which they mean, which is a building from which tobacco products are sold or vending machines. Now, with that one, I thought that was pretty interesting because I know that there is some community concern over the fact that they're banning menthol because black people and maybe other communities um, tend to use menthol flavored things. So it was sort of interesting to me that menthol was kind of I mean I guess it is a flavor I guess I don't think of it as a flavor but I remember I was talking to my friend in Keishi who's a public health professional and she was talking to me about how I believe she said that the reason why a lot of the flavors are being banned is because those things are typically marketed more to children and it is easier to hook them in because of those types of flavors that they're offering so it'll be interesting to see how the hookah field is affected by this I mean I know that hookah is a social activity as well and of course some people would say that smoking in general has always sort of been a community type 
activity. So I just wanted to add in that there are some concerns about some of the flavors being specifically targeted and how that may affect some communities more than others with regard to what people typically smoke within different community groups. So those were the six propositions that I briefly wanted to talk about. The election is on November 8th and in California everybody's going to be mailed a ballot so you're not going to have to worry about necessarily going to vote in person unless you want to and I know that a lot of people have their opinions about elections in general and midterms but I did want to talk about some of the things that are going to be on the ballot so that way if those measures are important to you you can go out and vote and be informed and also if they affect communities that you are from or that you have family members from that you would know exactly what's there. I'm going to go ahead and link the Secretary of State website for, you know, reading more about these things, about these, I guess it was seven, right? One, two, three, four. Yeah. Reading about these seven propositions that we went over. Like I said, you want to make sure that you don't just believe what you see on TV with regard to a proposition, what it says you know who's for or against it don't just believe the commercials I always think it's a good idea to look at who endorses it because you may find that you know there's a group that you do trust that are endorsing a specific proposition and you can always again not just believe what you hear on tv or in an ad about who's supporting it but go to those organizations themselves usually they have websites they may even have union websites where you can get directly from them which candidates they're supporting which measures are supporting and why they're doing that. That's a great way to help you make your decisions if you're unsure about which way you want to go. But I would say never believe anything you see on mass media about any of these ballot measures ever. Even with, I mean, I know like we have informed delivery for the USPS, like our mail. So even if you don't get the flyers, you'll generally see images because, you know, they're scanning the mail and they're telling you what to expect that day. You may see a lot of ads or posters that are just out and about in town, but always do your due diligence, always do your own research, and always look things up so that you can be an informed voter if you're planning to vote in this election. So this is going to be pretty short this week. I just wanted to talk about those seven propositions, but I will see you on the next episode of Happy Hour History. Thank you so, so much for listening as always, and I'll see you on the next episode. Bye.